listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how jack of all trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Before we get started with today's podcast, we wanted to let you know how you can get the first chapter of Cliff Hudson's new book, Master of None, for free. All you need to do is text the word CLIFF, C-L-I-F-F, to 31996. That's CLIFF to 31996 to get your free chapter of Cliff's new book, Master of None. Now, on to today's conversation. Welcome to my podcast, Master of None. This is Clifford Hudson. The subject of today's discussion is also contained in my recent book, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. In that book, I have a chapter entitled, Innovation is Not a Luxury. Innovation on many fronts was a continuing pursuit at Sonic in all of my 23 years I served as CEO. Today's discussion will be with two individuals who participated heavily in one aspect of innovation for Sonic, an innovation that lasted almost two decades and had a profound impact on Sonic's business. These two individuals are Brian Brooker and Pat Piper, both of whom were employed by the Kansas City advertising firm of Barclay at that time. These two individuals will provide the background on a story with which most of our listeners will have some familiarity. In spite of that familiarity, the story is both unique and interesting, and one which I believe you will enjoy. I'm happy to share this time with you today with Brian Brooker and Pat Piper. are two fellows who created an ad campaign for Sonic. In the early part of the last decade, they created a campaign called The Two Guys, and it carried a lot of weight for Sonic for a lot of years. It was actually transforming for our brand, I believe. But they're here with me today, and we're going to talk about that innovation, and we're going to talk about how they came to that, and we'll talk a little bit about how it changed our business. So glad to have with me today, Brian Brooker and Pat Piper. Hey guys, Hello. how are you doing? Great. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Yeah, good. You answered right together. That's impressive. <laughs> that rehearsed, pretty... We rehearsed that. <laughs> yeah, you must have. One, two, three. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be with you all today. And uh, from my standpoint, of course, having worked with you for a number of years uh, on, on this and other things, but I appreciate you uh, joining today on the, on the program. It'd probably be interesting for the group to, uh, we'll, we'll get to the, the what was then called Barclay and Evergreen, uh, the firm where each of you were when, when, the, when the three of us met. Uh, for our listeners, why, why don't you give a quick sense of your, your background, your business, and, and up to the point of the days at Barclay and the, and the origination of the two guys. Start with you, Brian. How's oh, that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I have been on the agency side uh, my whole career. Started in Kansas City went to Austin, Texas for 10 years, returned to Kansas City and took the job at Barclay where I met Pat and we had the opportunity to work on the Sonic campaign. Have continued in the advertising industry until the last five years where I am now at Garmin. So I'm working in-house, but I still do the same thing I did before. I still work for an in-house ad agency. I'm still a creative director 
And so I'm still having as much fun as I did before. It's just uh, a little more HR than what I'm used to. <laughs> so we so we met in uh, early 2000s, Pat and I did, and had the opportunity to work on Sonic. And it was certainly one of the best experiences I've had in my career and, and, and one of the most fun. And would love to tell you all about that today. Good. Pat, what was your path? Well, I started off in Lincoln, Nebraska. I was actually working while I was still going to school. And then I got a job in Omaha at a small uh, six-person shop. Worked there for a couple of years. uh, And then had a very, very brief stint at Bozell in Omaha. And then uh, my wife and I, we actually both worked at Bozell and we wanted to move to a uh, bigger market. So Came to Kansas City, worked at a place for a couple of years before I came to Barclay. And and I I always tell the story that I, I kind of grew up at Barclay. I think I started as a, a writer and um, grew up creative and, and career-wise at Barclay. Yeah, really kicked off when Brian came on. I think I was on, I was at Barclay for maybe a year or two before Brian um, started. And from there then ended up going uh, corporate side where I helped stand up an in-house agency for Hallmark Cards and worked there for, for five years. And, and yes, a very different, uh, very different experience. Still got to do what I loved. And now I'm back uh, working at VML r and have been here for four years. So you were a, um, in your, um, College days, you were a corn husker. It sounds like I was. I was. Yeah. Yes. So you, yeah. you probably you probably remember a few games uh, between the Sooners and the Corn Huskers. I was oh, saying, those so. were those were the best. Even growing up, I those yeah. those were the best. Barry Switzer and Tom yeah. Osborne and those. Were yeah. Great Tom, who? Tom who? Tom who? Tom who? That's right. That? That's right. Yeah. Right. Right. But uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of years of really great games. Yeah. And but, but you know, just different shades of red. You know, just a kind totally. Of, yeah. Almost confusing. Yeah. Yes. Right. I remember quite an aside, but going to an OU Nebraska game, let's say 20 years ago in Norman and a, a nice elderly woman, probably my age now, but I thought she was elderly <laughs> then, but um, she was sitting next to me and uh, the Sooner fans, every time the Cornhuskers would come to the line, Sooner fans would get so loud. She leaned over to me in this limited fashion. She said, well, our boys can hardly hear, you know, and, <laughs> That's I didn't have the heart point. to tell her that's yeah. the objective, yeah. you know, that's, that's, that's what's supposed yeah. to happen. So yes. at any rate, so a lot of great rivalries there. Well, the innovation piece, I think on this two guys campaign was quite exceptional. Uh, I recall at the time that one of the things that was occurring in um, advertising, television, advertising and, and television watching, I guess is a more important point is that consumers were really shifting. This is early, uh, still little early internet days and internet not quite as much for entertainment then uh, as it is today. But nonetheless, people were shifting away from uh, more conventional um, television program and really getting into reality television. I think it was about that time where, so you want to be a millionaire, you know, had, <laughs> right. had come on and it was captivating. This live television was captivating people night after night. It was quite extraordinary. I seem to remember it was in that context when you all probably started on it earlier because you came to us at Sonic. You came to us from Barclay with this idea. But the idea was, of course, that people aren't people are more intrigued with this reality television stuff. And the question comes up, was there a way for us to pick that up and replicate it in a 
you know, what would then have been a 30 second commercial context. Do I have that that context correct in terms of uh, some of the issues that were going on at the time in terms of how you break through with television creative? And was that on your, on your yeah. discussion list? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, you know, Cliff, I think it's interesting in the advertising business, the work that stands out the most is always the work that feels less like advertising that, you know, that feels fresh. And, and I think the idea of improv for TV commercials was, was really rare at the time. But as you said, it was sort of a cultural trend. And, and we knew if we were going to be able to do that, we, we had to do it in a way that was truly unique. And that's where improv came into play. And I guess I would also say that, you know, really Sonic is one of the few places where it would make a lot of sense because the Sonic menu is so diverse. The experience is quite unique where you drive, drive in and take your order. You talk in the car, you get to know each other. So it was the perfect platform for an improv situation. Well, I was just, I was just going to add, you know, from a business standpoint, the other challenge that we had was we were launching breakfast for you guys. And, and truth be told, Sonic was very late to market. And, you know, the research showed us that, you know, when it comes to morning routines, people are stuck in their ways and you really have to jolt them out of that. And so we had a menu that, that certainly could do that, but we had to go at it at a way that would really stand out um, and get people to notice. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the elegance of that campaign so you're talking about a breakthrough piece as it related to the two guys, but also, you know, what are people watching in the, the freshness, Brian, that you pointed out on the two guys. From Sonic's standpoint, and Pat, you raise a great point about the rollout of breakfast, because with the rollout of breakfast, we really moved more formally into five-day parts, breakfast, lunch, afternoon, dinner, and evening. And what the two guys, from a business standpoint, just a wonderful solution for the complexity of those five-day parts was that the creative could work across all five day parts yeah. and work quite easily. And if the programming, if the commercials were strictly food focused, then you'd have to get the consumer accustomed to what is it you're talking about uh, with this new product focused on a different day part. But by opening every commercial with the two guys, we got immediate recognition from the consumer about what we're talking about, even as we went into a different product line, a different day part. And so it carried us quite wonderfully. It had, it solves several uh, problems, but getting a little ahead of myself here. What about the conceptualization of this? How did you guys come to the idea at Barclay that this is something that might break through like this? Well, we, we, so it, this is actually based on an idea that we had done for you guys a year prior for the national sales convention where uh, Matt McKay, who could not join us today, but he he and I and had gone out and we had recorded us going through drive-throughs asking for Sonic items. And Cliff, you had called it out perfectly. The, the one that got everybody excited was, you know, when we asked for something and the person said, no, we don't have that Sonic does which was, you know, perfect audio. And, uh, you know, we did the video and, and uh, we had heard that it was very well received and then it was just kind of shelved. And it wasn't until, you know, breakfast had come up, you know, it was brought up like, hey, we should, you know, revisit that as a concept. So, you know, we had gone and, and actually recorded actual commercials, shot them, cut them, and those were used as the presentation of here is the concept. And oh, by the way, we've got, you know, 
four or five commercials that we've actually cut together. And, you know, that kind of makes it bulletproof from a, from a presentation standpoint, when you can actually present cut commercials. Yeah, that was, that was it. There wasn't anything like, I, I want to say, oh my God, there was, you know, X factor and X factor and X factor. And epiphany. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes creativity just kind of happens like that. It's an epiphany. And, you know, I, I do want to say just, you know, you know, and Cliff, you'd brought it up on the day part thing. Like when we went into this, it's like the benefits of the campaign really didn't unfold until after we had started it. And we're like, oh, yeah, what about that? And what about that? And what? And Cliff, I can remember you saying, you know, there were people that Sonic wasn't even in the markets that already knew about the campaign. And, you know, Absolutely. you had said, hey, the beauty of this is that, you know, we're already teeing up markets that we're going to move into. So they're already familiar with us. You know, that was that was kind of the the beauty of it and, and well, it's a testament it, to your you know trust in us to be able Well, to- I think the as a matter of fact, what that brand did ultimately, and still I'm probably still getting ahead of myself, was it helped make us a national brand, even as we are a kind of a super regional business. Put it this way, in nineteen ninety-five, we'd do investor relations in New York and people would say, Now remind me, what is your business? Yeah. yeah. And in 2005, we'd do investor relations in New York and they'd say, man, I love those two guys. (laughs) It was just astounding. Even though at 2005, there was virtually no presence around the New York City area as there was, you know, again, 10 years later, let's say. Well, talk a moment about once this was something that felt like it made sense, you, you had to go through a process of, okay, how do we select the someone? And is it an actor? Is it a comedian? Is it an improvisational comedian? Not not just a, a comedian, i.e. stand up versus improvisational. Uh, talk about that process uh, internally at Barclay, if you would. Yeah. So we definitely wanted improv because we wanted to feel, as you said, more reality TV. We wanted it to feel fresh every time, uh, which improv allows you to do. So we, we cast in Chicago and L.A., and we knew not only did they have to be really strong with improv skills, they had to have great chemistry. And we finally got to the point where we found Pete and we found TJ. They were acting with different people. And then when we put them together, there was there was magic. They each sort of assumed a role. They played off each other really well. They kind of made fun of each other, but but it was never too cutting. They just felt like they'd been friends for a lifetime. And I think, again, yeah. what was different from, again, what, what most restaurants and, frankly, commercials do is, is there's kind of a, a spokesman or it's, it's more of a setup scene. And this felt more like you were watching two people having a conversation. You were more the voyeur. And we think that really made it fresh from anything else that was on TV. Tell me, how many folks do you recall having listened to or, or you know, considered for the role before you took the two guys? I would say we probably cast a few hundred. We 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 cast from a few hundred people, and wow. it was such an amazing experience because what we were doing hadn't been done before. So we would call in groups of ten, and we would attempt to explain the concept to them, and then they would come in and do it. And there were people that came in with props, and you know we had a vision of like who we were looking for. And so there were some, you know, we, you know, LA, we had Upright Citizens Brigade coming in and, you know, and true actors coming in and in Chicago, you're in the heart of the best improv in the country. And, 
some of them didn't take too kindly to um, how we reacted to them because we weren't, you know, slapping our knees. And <laughs> I can remember after a couple came in, I was walking out to go to the bathroom and followed these two guys into the larger crowd of the group of all the people who were, you know, getting or waiting in line, pointed back into the room and said, you got a couple of live ones in there. And, you know, didn't realize that I was right <laughs> behind him when he was when he was saying that. But it was it, you know, it, to me, the testament of a great idea is is like there's so many ways that it can't work. And there's one way that it can. And it's like yeah. when we saw TJ and Pete together, like it was it was like this is this is, you know, how it can work. And and I was reminding Ryan and not even reminding, but just recalling when we initially, there was, there was some pushback on Pete and TJ and we had to go back and say, these are the guys. And again, pushback where, where, where was that? Oh, from Sonic. Like there was, there was, uh, you know, there was some hesitation in those guys and, you know, just some questions and stuff and what else you got. And we had to come back and say, these are the guys. And again, just another kind of stress test where, where, you know, incredible trust, that you guys had in us to say, okay, let's do it. Well, for uh, the record, let me state that I recognize their brilliance right <laughs> off. You know? Sure, it was let's not be, you. Let's <laughs> be very clear about you that. Can't, you, know? you can't see, but I had a little trickle of sweat come down my forehead when I brought up that story. <laughs> well, we'll go back and find out who, who it was that raised that question. So the two guys were both improvisational comedians at the time, right? In Chicago. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, yep. right. And do you have any idea, had they worked together? Do they know each other at that point? They did know each other. And yeah, I mean, the improv, especially in Chicago, it's near impossible for you not to cross paths with one another. So they knew of each other, had worked with each other, but not, you know, TJ was part of Improv Olympics. Pete was part of Second City. And so their paths had crossed and, and, but they were not the good friends that they are now. And I, they, they are good friends each with the other, as I've Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen them over the years doing the business and, and talking to them recently. It's just fascinating what good relationship is there. It's very gratifying. So once they were selected, given the work that you had already done, did you already have an idea of the uh, nature of the creative you wanted to pursue? Or was that developed because of, with the two guys in, that you'd selected or we had selected? In mind, yeah, I, I will board. say, uh, Cliff, that again, as Pat mentioned, this really evolved because at the beginning, as you recall, it was it was just breakfast, and we did go through the competitors and ask for things like pancake on a stick and things like that they wouldn't have, and it worked great. And then I remember uh, my boss said, "Okay, we got to start thinking about what's the big campaign," and I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I think we've we've got it. I think I think we have something with Pete and TJ." So we decided to expand it beyond breakfast. And then the other thing, I think that the, the biggest thing we did was we took it away from other drive throughs and we took it right onto the Sonic lot. And there were reasons for that. You know, some people said we were starting to be too mean to other restaurants. They started to become recognized uh, at other restaurants, so we couldn't really use it. And we were we were relying on other restaurants to sort of help tell the the punchline to the joke. So we took them to Sonic and now you could open the commercial. You're on the Sonic lot. You got instant branding. You cut to them in the car and they can talk about any item. So it was an incredible format change that worked for, as you said, you know, the next 17 years, 17 or 18 years. Yeah. 
And what a fascinating idea that, that, that the most innovative things seem to be first going to the competitor sites, which I remember those commercials very clearly. But what I hear you saying is what permitted then day part, product, et cetera, innovation was something that might've been counterintuitive, that is going to the Sonic lot and, yeah. and basing it there. And, and then and your, your point then running for another 17, 18 years, uh, really, really exceptional. Oh, I was I was laughing when you said, you know, how, how, did you guys like envision where and I can remember before we rolled the first time, you know, we're in the van, we're following the guys because the way that we had to record it was, you know, we had hidden cameras set up in their car and then we had to follow them to get the signal in a van, you know, a couple of cars back when we go through drive throughs And I can remember Reed Rutlinger saying to me. So how do you guys see this all like cutting together? And I was like, I have no <laughs> idea. Like we we just did not know. And like thinking back, it was like it was so kind of scary and exciting that we just we just didn't know how the hell we were going to do this. Yeah, that was that. Well, that, I guess if you knew if you knew the end of the punchline for all innovation, it really wouldn't be innovation. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so. That's that's very true. It, very yeah, true. that is the, that is the. The fun side of, the, of creative is you don't know what it's going to end up look like or, or it's not that creative. Do you feel like a jack of all trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a quote expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack of all trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Now, back to the interview. He tells me that he recalls O2 being the point in time where they came on board. How do you recall the evolution of the creative over the next five or six years in that, in that first decade of their uh, engagement? How did you all shift it? Perhaps with the two guys, the question might be, how did they evolve it in a way that surprised you or you thought was more effective or whatever? Any thought about that? Yeah, I've got a couple thoughts. I, th I think as we started working on this, this became kind of the envy of the agency. Everybody wanted to work on it. And we knew we had a good idea because it was something that everybody could contribute to. So it was it was one one misconception about the campaign is people think that this was all Pete and TJ and you know, we just sat back and watched them do their stuff. And that's that's partly true. But really, we, I, I was going to say, I thought that was the whole deal. <laughs> that, that was 80% of it, probably. <laughs> I but, didn't know it was anything else. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> Actually, uh, we, we would come up with, it's almost like a skit or Saturday Night Live where we would come up with an idea. And each one kind of had their roles. You know, TJ was a little slower on the uptake. And, you know, they we, we kind of wrote it with each one in mind. You know, the food was kind of front and center and we had to kind of find what is it about the food that's unique and we're going to work that into the joke. And we, we put the ideas on on index cards and if the idea worked, great. If if we started going a direction and they started having a lot of fun with it, we might keep pushing them a little bit. If the idea didn't work, we'd move on to the next 
index card. So it just became a process where everybody contributed so many different ideas and we could call them down. And it, it we really got it down to a kind of a, a science and an art, I guess, at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was, um, it was, it was an incredible and, and, you know, how it evolved is, you know, obviously from, from, you know, going to the drive-through to the, them talking to themselves on the lot, but, you know, they, they really started to fall into their characters a little bit more. Their characters developed a little bit more. I always saw Pete as kind of the Ben Stiller, the, the guy who always wanted to, kind of get it right, but never quite did. And TJ, you know, always played uh, the kind of somewhat mean at times uh, dummy, uh, <laughs> you know, it's very simple in, in, in his approach to the world. He took everything literally. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He did. He did. <laughs> and it's right. so funny because, you know, criticism, it's like, oh, he's so dumb. And it's like, really, if you dissected the the way that he is, comes across as quote unquote dumb is really smart. Like you have to really think on different levels to get to where he gets. And yeah, yeah. I mean, to Brian's point was, was, you know, sometimes we'd have an idea that we'd pitch to them, you know, three or four sentences and they would like say a word and we'd say, Oh wait, no, that's it. And then we would just, we'd tweak on the fly and we'd say, okay, yeah, yeah. Like that, go with that more. So it was this, you know, very organic thing. And we would just go with, with the best material. And we, you know, would go in saying, hey, this could work, this couldn't. And sometimes you'd see something on paper and say, oh, my God, this is going to be brilliant. And it wouldn't be. And something that you'd say, oh, there's not much there would turn out to be fantastic, you know. And it yep. was just- In the long run, were you surprised to see what it became over time? Were you surprised that it really became a not just a longstanding, but a national campaign with a highly recognizable and almost a most any cocktail party you went to, you could, you could raise it if you wanted. You had a pretty good chance of getting somebody <laughs> going on the topic. Either, either they loved it or they hated it. My reaction was always love it or hate it. Just, just re- recognize it, remember it, know the brand, you know? Yeah. So, but did that, did that intrigue you that it had the, uh, the legs and the longevity that it had? Well, I was just going to say from my perspective, we never ran out of material. You know, a new product would come out at Sonic. We'd find out what was unique about it. We would have an endless supply of ideas. And that told me, again, we were on to something big. And so really, it didn't surprise me uh, that it, maybe that it ran as long as it did, but it had great staying power. They were always funny because they were improv and people enjoyed watching them. So, you know, it, it worked on so many levels and I think just the fact that it, you know, had an endless supply of creative ideas against it, you know, told me we were on to a pretty big idea. Two points I want to make, because I'm going to tell an interesting story about when I officially felt that, oh, my God, this could be big. You know, first things first, like credit to Brian in that no matter how big this got, it never felt I never felt the weight of the bigness of it. Like it was always fun. There wasn't pressure like oh my God, we have to, you know, top ourselves. And we have to, it was just like, you know, continue to do great work. And, and I think that's what kept it fun and kept everybody engaged. Matt McKay had told me this story. Um, he had a friend who, you know, we, we shot, the first time we shot was in Arizona and that was one of the key markets. And he had a friend who had called him up and said that he was at a backyard picnic and there was a group of people gathered around a person. And it turned out that Dante Culpepper 
the quarterback was the NFL quarterback was at this picnic. And so this person like walked up to the edge of the thinking that what they were asking him was, you know, Hey, tell us about, you know, playing in the NFL. And what they heard was he was reciting one of the two guys commercials <laughs> that he had seen. And so I was like, okay, wow, this might, this might be something, you know, I, you know, as a creative creating something, you really want whatever you you know, whatever you create to be the biggest thing ever. And that's what, what year was that? Do you recall the, the, the Dante um, Culpepper story? That would have been, well, when we started in 2000, that would have been 2002, you know, end of 2002 wow. or 2003. Wow. Yeah. So, so right off like, the bat. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, uh, that was, that was cool, you know, and you knew that something was going to, you know, was going to spark from there. Well, it's interesting that you describe that that way about it sparking and uh, be, you know, be having the talk value it had. Did you ever run into anybody in the advertising business that told you it was their idea? <laughs> I I hear or, that I hear that a lot. I hear I hear it a lot where I talk to other creatives when you know it's like when I meet them for the first time they're like, oh, you created the you know you helped create this two guys campaign. And I was like, yeah, and and they say, oh yeah, I just talked to you know six other people who said the exact same thing last you know last week. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, well, you know, good, nice to meet you. Good, good, <laughs> good start of the conversation. Sure, we're going to be fast friends. Talk to you later. Well, uh, the concept we've discussed separately that success has a thousand fathers. So, <laughs> you know, it's an ultimate compliment, I think, when you hear other people uh, claiming the origination of your ideas. Be curious in my next podcast, I'm going to be interviewing, you know, Pete and TJ. And uh, one of my questions to them being, you know, kind of what this has done for their careers and life path, et cetera. From your own standpoint, having participated in this, I would assume this is something, I mean, if I think about uh, years ago, a doctor claiming to have done the first heart transplant, <laughs> you know, or, a, or a, a lawyer famous for, you know, big merger and acquisition deals and so on and so forth. What kind of feather in your cap is something like this as you are able to talk to folks about it in the industry and your, your career moves, moves along? Does this campaign have uh, contribute to your story along the way? Absolutely. Yeah. I think the thing about Sonic, it's such a shorthand. I mean, everybody knows Sonic 2 guys. They know what you're talking about. So whenever somebody brags on me, you know, I, I act all shy, but, you know, I'm really not. <laughs> but But they'll... <laughs> They'll say, oh, yeah, Brian, you know, he, he helped create the Sonic 2 guys. And you're like, you're kidding, because it is so iconic. So it's it's a feather in your cap that, you know, is super glued into your cap. You know, it's a, it yeah. lasts a lifetime. So, Well, Brian, I seem to recall that you you have um, another campaign for another <laughs> brand. Might not have lasted 17 years, <laughs> but had a pretty good run as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we I worked on Southwest, which is probably my other favorite account to work on. So. They had both. You're now free to fly about the country, and must be football yeah. season where they're two big campaigns. So yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of good creative for a lot of years. Sorry, yeah. Pat. Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say my favorite is is that when you know because you know like Brian, I don't. Hi, I'm Pat Piper. I helped create the Sonic Two guy. Like you know, it's not something that, and maybe even to my detriment, but it it is something that was. But my favorite is is when I've worked at a place. I haven't touted that. And then somebody individually finds that out and, yeah. and they come to me and they're like, Oh my God, you helped create that. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. 
that's that's my favorite like if, <laughs> if we're if we're talking about ego stroking like that's my favorite when yeah. i can totally be perceived as downplaying it and then they find it out on their own and and but well, uh, I hope I hope in that kind of setting you get some of these. How did that happen? Tell yeah, me yeah. your story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, you got an hour. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't mind talking about that. Have a seat. You know. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. Uh, pretty cool stuff. Any thoughts when I talk to the two guys of uh, angles that I should raise with them? Recollections on your part or um, points of curiosity well, that he, I should. There one thing I always found interesting, Cliff, about particularly about TJ was I remember we had one concept where he, he needed to memorize one line of copy and he couldn't do it. And he goes, yeah. look, I can improv all day, but I, I can't memorize seven words. And so I'm just curious if, if you could uh, may, maybe press on that a little bit, because uh, I just think that's pretty unique, you know, a talent that can't memorize copy, but is great at improv and how that has kind of manifest itself in his career. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they both have such interesting uh, career paths because, you know, uh, Pete really got into the the writing side of it and, and has, you know, worked for Colbert and Seth Meyers and, and did some great TV shows. And Pete has been on some amazing, you know, I text him when I watch Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or, you know, Veep and Pete shows up and I didn't even think to like look at it. And I text him, I'm like, it is such a pleasure to like see you come in and for me to say, Oh my God, there's Pete. And then be able to text him and say, Hey, you know, saw <laughs> you and what, you know, what a great, whereas, you know, TJ has forever just been a, an incredible performer and a student of improv. And, you know, when he wasn't doing it, he was teaching it. One of my favorite stories is it was, it was our first shoot and TJ and Pete, they were sitting at the bar at the, I think the, either the night before of our first shoot or right after our first shoot. And they were speculating how big this could be. And they were like, you know, hey, if this if these commercials go great and, you know, we do another round, we could look at making, you know, upwards of maybe fifty, sixty thousand dollars. Like, and how great would that be? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, right. And, uh, uh, you know, so I just I, I love that. But, you know, they, they're fantastic guys. And and if you can recall, it doesn't have any. You know, we shot a lot in Vegas, and we had a great uh, night at the at the craps table with this one guy. And, and, <laughs> and that, that stays is, in Vegas. Isn't yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. He is right. such a uh, an intense gambler. It was so funny to watch the dynamic, but they're fantastic, fantastic guys. Well, it's and funny we were, your story about um, uh, what incredible uh, improvisation improvisational comedian and he, uh, TJ is Brian, you made that point about remembering whichever you did. One of you did about remembering lines <laughs> and, you know, seven words. Recently I watched uh, stranger than fiction. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, yep. and um, so that here are the two guys, every scene in which one of them is present, both of them are present, but uh, it wasn't until you just told that story that I, uh, I believe the case Pete had most of the lines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So somebody must have discovered that yeah. into the recording process. Yeah, we, we had a bet. We had a bet that it was the the Sonic campaign that actually prompted um, them being cast in that role. Yeah. Uh, the director uh, of the movie says, "Oh no, it's just happenstance." But it was like, "Nah, yeah, yeah it's too much, too much of a coincidence." Well, was, I think the film was like 2006, so yeah. that would have been yeah. three or four years under you know pretty good sized television exposure. Yeah. And in a period of time where Sonic was moving 
you know, let's just say by 04, half of its, can, its uh, advertising funds to national cable. Yeah. So it was getting, by that time, they were getting, let's just say in, in 2005, 2006, you know, there was whatever, 50 million a year spent on some national media. So they were getting some pretty good exposure on a, on a broad basis. Well, interesting paths, interesting story for the two of them. Uh, I'm very much going to look forward to uh, hearing the, you know, flip side of the same coin. You know how how they viewed coming to it and and the progression over time. Your comment about one of them, uh, TJ, whichever, saying, uh, "Gee, if this thing runs, we mm-hmm. could make X amount of dollars." TJ's told me the story separately that the first check he got, and he and he just said it. First check I got was for six thousand bucks. And it kind of tells where he was then that O2 time frame almost 20 years ago. Because he said, I got a check for six thousand bucks and it occurred to me I could pay a whole year's rent for the six thousand bucks. Whoa, in yeah. Chicago. Oh my. <laughs> but uh, it was a you know life changer from that uh, standpoint for the for the two of them. So well, any other perspectives you all have to impart uh, today before we draw to a close? It's a, I, I, I have enjoyed the time talking about this and appreciate your uh, participation in it. And, and it's fascinating to see in your business, the businesses you're in, what a significant role this has played in your careers. I Obviously, from Sonic's standpoint, it was transformative. I loved the relationship. You know, I, uh, my own little story in the great recession, when we stopped using it for a while, which was a mistake, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, and brought them back. I had cocktails with them in Southern California the night before filming. And of course, my reaction was, oh boy, you know, I get to have cocktails with the two guys and it'll be like three guys, you know, (laughs) maybe after cocktails, they'll say, well, why don't you come sit in the car with us? You know, we'll make it a three guys campaign. And, and uh, I had all my hopes up and so on. So we sit down and started talking and uh, TJ says to me, you know, it's really great to see you. He says, you know, we always think of you as our uncle. <laughs> That's what you want to hear. At that moment, I, you know, I wanted to say you are fired, you know. <laughs> you, the but, the so quiet I, uncle who never says anything. Yeah, so just writes us checks, you know. Yeah. So I, at that moment, I thought, okay, forget sitting in the back seat with the two guys. They may, may shove me in the trunk or something, so. Uh, at any rate, but any any thoughts? Any closing? Uh, I I have I just have one one other thought, which I thought again was very unique for the campaign, uh, because it was improv. We were able to shoot, you know, maybe twenty five different scenarios, and we would edit all of them, and then we would we would finally let's say pick the best six or seven, and when we met with you, we would present all six of them, and they were ready to go. And then you yeah. would respond and you'd say, okay, that one and that one. And we, we run those two as ready to go. So very different than doing one commercial and, you know, you go back and forth. This was more of a finished product that you're looking at for the first time. The economics of that were so wonderful. Yeah. You know, just thinking about our, we didn't, we didn't have a 500 million or a billion dollar ad budget, you know, so to be able to produce that number of commercials so then in a one month period, you know, we may run three or four different creative things, pushing, you know, a new product or different products at different day parts. And, and yet the method that you all use for that permitted us to do that within a more limited budget. It was just yeah, huge. We, we didn't even talk about the whole editing process because we would go in, you know, we cut with White House out of Chicago and New York. And, and the process was that day one was 
they would show us upwards of, you know, I mean, sometimes 200 edits within a single day. And it was impossible to even, so what we would have to do the first day is we would just go through the edit and we would say, we would mark them. We'd say, okay, we're going to come back to that tomorrow. And every day was us just whittling it down and fine tuning to, you know, get to a place where we felt good enough to, you know, present Brian with, with cuts and then ultimately present you Cliff with cuts. And that was, you know, that was crazy. I think that, you know, the thing that I always tell people is, is that, you know, when you have a relationship with a client for a long time, as Barkley did with, with Sonic, there's a tendency to get kind of stale and everybody second guesses everybody. And you're like, oh, I know what they want. And it, it really reflects the creative. And I think that, you know, with Brian coming in the way that he did, you know, I think there was uh, an internal challenge that we could be doing the best work for Sonic. And, you know, we started to, you know, make those changes. And, you know, we, we saw, we saw, you know, good results in this month at Sonic. And then ultimately with the two guys. But, you know, what I always tell everybody is, is like, we switched the creative to where it was to, to the two guys. And no one changed internally. Like Sonic was, it was like, you know, it was you, it was Reed, it was, you know, Kevin, it was, it was all of the same people. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes, you know, my challenge is, is sometimes as agencies, we sell ourselves short. We say, oh, we know the client, oh, they'd never buy that. And we stop with the surprising. And, and, you know, and I think that, so I think that's a good challenge to, uh, to agencies to, you know, keep, because eventually you're going to get so in your ways, you're going to get fired. So yeah. you might as well keep on trying to get fired. <laughs> uh, you're very point. You're very point. They, you know, they, they'd never go for that. I mean, I got to say, aside from the advertising side of the business, in the, my last 10 years with Sonic, one of the biggest innovations, and I guess it did have to do with advertising, had to do with media. But in one of the biggest innovations we went through, we had some senior folks saying our franchisees will never go for that. And I remember that my test on that was, well, who do you think will be the biggest opponent? Gave me a name. I said, then we'll start with him. Sat down and showed him the strategy. And he said, well, why wouldn't we do this? You know, so anyway, it's a, you know, you, you can do, be your own worst enemy against innovation when you do start this kind of stale approach to so-and-so will never buy that rather than trying to move towards a, a, a path and a finish line that makes more sense. Well, I appreciate you guys participating in the conversation this morning. It's great to see both of you. It's great to hear both of you. I think our listeners will find a pretty good story in your story. It's uh, one that that I have enjoyed over the years, but enjoy hearing once again. And and it'll be a fun counterpart to the two guys as well, which uh, I'll send you a copy of as soon as I get it. Looking looking forward to hearing that. Yeah. Thank you for having us on. It's fun to talk about. It was a a lot of fun for, for both Pat and myself. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. Okay. Well, best of luck to both of you. We'll look forward to talking along the way. And again, appreciate your time this morning. You got it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go. 
Would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Oh,